today we're going to um, we're going to bring you some good news because there hasn't been a whole lot of good news lately. We can be heartened by the reversal of Metrolink's trends, and these new trends are good for you and me. We'll take up the, those with my first guest, Metrolink's CEO John Fenton. Uh, he'll be my second guest. I'll tell you about my first guest when I bring him on in just a minute. And after uh, we're hearing from uh, John Fenton, we'll hear from the uncannily clear thinker, skeptic, and science writer, Brian Dunning. Well, as promised, and first of all, I want to open with the views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. Now back to our show, I wanted to uh, introduce to you first the uh, Newport Beach Library Foundation board member of four years, Gordon McAlpine. He's the president in the last year and a half. He's a novelist, and he is going to talk to us today about the Library Lit 2011 Newport Beach Libraries Foundation Creative Writing Contest for High School Students. Welcome to the show, Gordon McAlpine. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm I really appreciate this opportunity. It's good to have you here. Is this the first ever? This is actually the second annual. We, um, we, we had a great success last year, and uh, with the same format, um, which involves all students age 14 to 18, or it's open to all students age 14 to 18 who hold a Newport Beach Public Library card. I want to add that you don't have to live in Newport Beach, by the way, to have a Newport Beach Public Library I'm card. Glad, I'm glad you bring that up. I say that every time I meet somebody who's telling me they don't own that card yet. Absolutely. All that's required, you can either stop in at any of the Newport Beach branches, or you can go to the uh, Newport Beach, to, to our website, www.newportbeachlibrary.org, and get a library card that way. Excellent. So, you know, it's important to us that the contest and that the, in general, the, li the library in general be available to everybody in the area. Very you know, good. Regardless of mailing address. Right. And I, as I say, as I want to say and love to say is, you'll find books at this library that you didn't know you were looking for. That's true, and you'll find a lot of other things as well. And um, one, of the thing, one of the things I'd like to advise people is to take a look at our website, which is Newport Beach Public Library Foundation dot org, um, and and there you'll find a number of the entries from uh, last year's program, including the winner. And the other thing is that we have little interviews with some of the uh, high school aged writers who who entered their stories, and they discuss the process of writing it and what they were after. And and um, so it's a real opportunity again now this year for young people to let their creativity flow. We, in addition, you know, it's sort of a nice little bonus. We're offering a $250 first prize, and there will be publication of the story in our um, newsletter, which is called Bookmark, which goes out to thousands of people in the local area. And it's laid out really beautifully, and uh, it's a nice, it's a great first publication for somebody. So, it's a great one, and I'm just I'm wanting this to be aired today because we know that uh, students are preparing more portfolios for their admissions next fall and the, into the year, and so this is a this is a very big feather in your cap for those of you who love to put to wordsmith your way through things. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, yeah, it's a tremendous uh, feather in one's cap. You know, it does look great on a college application. And the thing is that, you know, in addition to choosing one winner, um, and that winner will be featured in our uh, newsletter, all, almost, or a number of other entries will also be featured on our website, as we did last year. We're, all, we're still planning to do those interviews with authors. So, so just entering really uh, is a big step towards creating a really great little package of creativity that one could include along with a college application, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, what what kind of a piece was last year's? So we know what's what's going to be different this year. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what. The there one of the things before I get to last year's. One of the things that we require of all the stories is that they they can be any genre. It can be a mystery. It could be a romance. It could be a, a literary story. You know, um, but we require that they all be library themed in one way or another. Oh, it can be set in the library. It can have. Um, I mean, there, there's really no limit to the creative possibilities of playing with, with this kind of library theme. But we do want, but the story has to have something to do with a library. And um, the other thing it, to keep in mind is that, this, that we'll, we'll be choosing a winner with publication in mind in our, in our publication. So, you know, the, the, while, while I want the young writers to let their imaginations really go, but keep in mind your readership. You know, which is a general a general population of of all ages, and um, and that's part of a writer's task anyway, is to keep in mind the readership of the, of the publication. Uh, otherwise, library themed, and and then the story can be about anything. Last year's winner had to do with a a, a young girl um, meeting an older man in the library, and a kind of a a um, coming of age. Sort of story this, in which this octogenarian, you know, mid '80s, and 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 this this girl sort of find a common interest in in books and in uh, in the library. Again, that makes it sound a little bit too much like a library PR piece. It, it wasn't that. It was really much more of a kind of a moving human piece, uh, and the library was just a setting. And now, is the library always going to be? Uh, let's, I'm going to continue this tradition. I'm assuming you're going to go for another 25 to, to 50 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> with, with this contest, but uh, so yeah. is it always going to be about uh, something springing from the library setting? Well, you theme? know, I, I we I can't speak quite that far into the future, but That's hard we were to. really pleased last year with the way that that worked because you know there's something kind of magical about libraries anyway. It's, it's not. Um, it's not too limiting a factor because you've got books and you've got all sorts of other kinds of media involved. It's a it's a place where the public gathers, um, and so I think that in into the near future, it will probably it will be a, it will remain a library themed contest. I think. Wonderful, wonderful. Did it surprise you what you saw last year? It did. It did. I mean the the range. It was a it was a difficult process. I, I mean choosing a winner. Um, there were a lot of really good entries, um, and it's the thing that did surprise me, and one of the reasons that we decided to return again with this library theme was just how diverse the um, how diverse the entries were, how how little limit saying that it has to have some sort of library connection, how little that actually limits imagination because the stories were all over the place all you know you could have a futuristic library and which we did and and you could have a, a love story which we did and you could have these stories of generations coming together as the winner mm, was i like that you one know, which we did and 
And, um, you know, I could envision, uh, we didn't get any kind of um, mystery. I, it seems like a great setting for a mystery to me. We didn't get that last year, and, and uh, um, but I'm looking forward to seeing on a whole new batch this year. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Very good. Well, I want to, uh, for those who just tuned in, we're talking with novelist and Newport Beach Library Foundation President Gordon McAlpine, who is addressing the opportunity for you young writers, you high school students, the Liberty Lit 2011, the contest, which will, um, which the deadline will be September 1st. Is there uh, anything else you want to impart for well, our listeners? Well, the other thing, you know, let me correct something I said a little earlier in terms of the, the website. Let me give the website address uh, again. Because yes, please do. There are, there are brochures are available at any of the Newport Beach Public Library libraries, but um, you can also get information right now on you know via the internet at www.nbplfoundation.org. Again, that's NBPL as in Newport Beach Public Library. We'll be and, sure to put that on the podcast too in the summary. Fantastic! That would be great, and. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing some wildly creative and uh, lovely entries coming our way. And thank you so much for helping. Well, we're glad because uh, you didn't get a whole lot of notice, and but I also don't like to let opportunities go by the wayside, so it's more important that opportunities are taken than we worry about decorum and notice <laughs> yes. and things like that. So I thank you, Gordon McAlpine, for coming on our show today so that we could make sure that you high school students had the ones of you that are awake now. I think the the enterprising ones are awake. That's the right. not so enterprising ones are going to hear from their enterprising friends. That That's right. Here's Pass opportunity. Along, please. I don't know what no, uh, novelists, um, writers, uh, you know, what their clock looks like. They may be up. They may not be up yet. It's so. all over the place. I have to tell you, it's all over the place. You know. But. Well, I just for, also forgot to mention that Gordon McAlpine is a, himself a UCI uh, grad. Uh, he was in the Masters of Fine Arts Creative Writing Program. And um, that's been in there for many years now. Um, I, I remember it when uh, Tom Keneally was here and so uh, so many others. But uh, you were apparently before, just before then. But um, I was just before Tom Keneally. I was, I was actually here when the, the founders, Don Heine and Oakley Hall, founded the program. I mean, I was here in the early 80s. They founded it in the mid-60s. Well. But um, they, were, they were a wonderful pair, and they really established a, uh, a highly successful program that remains just wonderful to this day, you know, under Michelle Lachelet's leadership. And so um, uh, I'm really proud to be an alumni, and an the, alumnus of that program. And the good of that continues on in your efforts to, I'm going to say, build literacy and creativity through opportunities like this Library Lit 2011. I want to thank you, Gordon McAlpine, for being on Ask a Leader this morning. I wish you uh, success in uh, not only uh, this round with this uh uh, contest, but with keeping that foundation thriving, and as it serves much more than just Newport Beach, it's it's a regional uh, institution, and I'm glad that we had a chance to talk to, with you about that in a broader sense. Thank you so much, Claudia. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care, and uh, we'll stay tuned. I want uh, to uh, then bring up John Fenton, CEO of Metrolink, in just a little bit, but we'll take a small break while we dial him up. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. 
88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Morley Kwasniewski, who is with the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He is currently assigned to Transit Police Services, which contracts with the Orange County Transit Authority and is under the Homeland Security Division of the Sheriff's Department. He's been with the Sheriff's Department for over 20 years, so we are so grateful to have you, Morley. Thank you, Mari. I'm glad to be here. Well, tell us about your assignment with the Transit Police Services. Well, Transit Police Services consists of two details. There's a uniform detail of 15 deputies that respond to transit-related incidents aboard OCTA buses and transportation centers throughout the county. There is also a plainclothes detail called the right-of-way team, which I am a part of, that patrol checks the railroad right-of-ways throughout the county as well as on board the Metrolink trains. The right-of-way is a term that describes the entire area dedicated for the train and is considered railroad property. This area includes but is not limited to the actual train tracks and the area each side of the tracks oftentimes, which is walled off or fenced off. People generally enter these areas through holes in walls or fences and at intersections where the tracks cross the roadway. Well, you know, Marley, I know that recently there have been deaths on the railroad tracks. It's so tragic, and I know this is is very hard for the Sheriff's Department as well. Why don't you share with us some of those challenges that the OCSD has with the trains and the tracks in Orange County? Sure. Some of the challenges or concerns we face on the railroad tracks are trespassing, vandalism, and homeland security threats. In regards to trespassing, we run into many different reasons that people may be on the railroad tracks. It could be as simple as it is a shortcut to their residence and they use the tracks as a path to get home. It could be that they are attempting to avoid contact with law enforcement on the street due to narcotics or alcohol issues as well as they are possibly wanted by law enforcement for various reasons and they have nowhere else that they can stay. Some people use the right-of-way as an exercise area in order to run or walk their dog. More concerning to us is the possibility that a person has wandered onto the train tracks when they are considering ending their life or committing suicide. Oh, it's just so tragic when they do that. I mean, what a horrible way to die. And and just why would anybody want to even exercise on the railroad tracks? So if you're listening to this and you're thinking of doing that, just stay away from them because we're going to have uh, Morley back next week to tell us some of the other challenges. So why don't you give the website, Morley? Our website is www.ocsd.org. Great. We'll have you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. That uh, PSA was uh, very timely as far as we're going to now talk with the CEO, John Fenton, the CEO of Metrolink of the many counties here in Southern California. Uh, John Fenton joined Metrolink as its CEO in April of 2010, and he's brought substantial changes to the railroad, including enhancing the safety culture, improving equipment utilization and capitalization, and instituting a fuel conservation program that has improved that has improved emissions and uh, saved millions. Under John Fenton's short tenure. Metrolink has launched the nation's safest fleet of passenger rail cards, and this was this is important because of the situation with the the wreck that occurred, the catastrophic wreck uh, in 2008. Uh, he has extensive railroad experience. Posts include general manager at and VP at Canadian 
National Railway, Canada's largest freight railroad. He's vice president of the Kansas City Southern Railway and executive with Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, which later become Burlington, Northern Santa Ana Fe Railway. He lives with his wife uh, in Pasadena uh, for these last 33 years. I don't know, not the Pasadena part, that's the wife part, right, John? And um, I want, uh, after having read such a lovely write-up in the Los Angeles Times over the, in the Sunday paper, I wanted to have a chance to talk about this great reversal of fortunes with the uh, the Metrolink. Welcome to Ask a Leader, John Fenton. Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to have you here. I just wanted to start out by going over some of the highlights for uh, the, and the milestones with Metrolink that now you are uh, at the helm steering so so vigorously and well. And and we'll we'll talk about um, in a moment after the milestones just what sort of wonderful mix of private sector background you bring to an extremely enlightened management model at Metrolink. Well, the the first commuter arrived for the Metrolink in 1992, and the, that's when the contracts were all let out, the maintenance and all that started. The the first service was in Ventura, Santa Clarita, and the San Bernardino lines. Then Orange County's line began in 1994, and then the 1995 was the startup of the Inland Empire Orange County line. That was the nation's first suburb to suburb community commuter rail line. we got to be proud of that. And then in 97, on January 1st, the Rose Parade train took the San Bernardino residents to the world-famous Tournament of Roses. And after that, it was um, various services included. Um, new cars were added. Metrolink had an annual holiday toy express. We heard about that from time to time on my neighborhood listserv. Uh, it collected uh, quite a bit for underprivileged children. Then in 2002, the Tustin Station opened. That's here in Orange County. That's the one close to me. I've loved to ride my bike to the Tustin Station, take it on the Metrolink, and up to L.A. or somewhere. Uh, that opened uh, in 2002, uh, service on Thanksgiving Day, uh, San Bernardino Inland Empire, Orange County lines. And then 2006, Metrolink launched its Saturday-Sunday service on the Orange County Inland Empire County lines, uh, Orange lines. And I remember that. There were very many families that knew what that meant for um what a deal, what a bargain, what an introduction to this service. So, John, you've made a very important contribution at a very essential time for Metrolink with your private sector experience and, as I said, this enlightened management uh, style and uh, process to uh, improve morale and interact with the writers themselves. I think it's important, you know, I mean, if you look at what uh, what the role we play, uh, we're here to serve the communities, and we're here to provide a vital service, and I think that it's important to do that in a way that creates a product people want to, 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 to uh, use. And, you know, if there's anything that, that I've tried to stress since I've been here, it's, it's about our customers. And if you look at all of your decision-making around the customer, hopefully that's a product that people want to use and, and they take pride in and uh, you know we're starting to see the railroad ridership grow and, and that's a good feeling because you know we're here to serve serve the public. Indeed and um, I forgot in my introduction with you um, I had uh, on my show a couple of times in the spring of this year the uh, UCI transit advocates these are urban planning masters uh, students and uh, some of the administrators at UCI, and before I let them talk, 
I asked them, how do they get to school? How do they get to the station today? How did you get to your office today, John Fenton? Uh, I took the gold line. You take, you really yeah, did? I, yeah, the gold line's a great way to, you know, it's very close to my uh, where I live in Pasadena. It's an easy ride downtown to Union Station, and of course I'm fortunate that my office is right by Union Station, so there's no better way to commute than to do it, uh, in my case, on the gold line. All right. And I, I mean, that's what the L.A. Times showed you there working the crowds. I thought that might have been a cameo experience. And you're here to tell me you really do take that in there. Well, you know, two different things. Unfortunately, I can't use the Metrolink service because we don't have Metrolink train that goes to Pasadena. So I take advantage of the light rail system. But I do get out and ride Metrolink trains on a regular basis. I think it's important that you know your product. Uh, you see, um, if you don't go out and, and inspect it and stay close to it and see really for yourself what's going on, I think it's hard to make good management decisions about what the needs are and what the standards should be. And if you, if you, uh, if you never use your product, you really don't know what's going on. And I think you always have to constantly look at it through the eyes of the user. Well, it seems like uh, uh, I'm not going to dismiss the user entirely, but it seems like you're also aware of what the the employee is uh, about. Oh, oh, no doubt, because there are ambassadors. You know, if you look at um, what we what we what we try to teach and and what we what we want from our frontline employees that are out there is, you know, I, I tell them all the time: you have the difference to, between making a good day and a bad day for our passengers. You know, it's amazing what a smile does, what a friendly face does, treating somebody uh, really well, because people don't expect it. You know, most people don't expect to be treated well. And we all know it when we get it, and it feels good, and that's what we tried. That's what we want to do here. We want our employees to reach out and treat our customers and our passengers in a manner that they would treat their own families like. That is really good to hear. Um, I often wonder, uh, I, I ask actually, uh, when I'm in the service sector, a, a flight, and I haven't asked this of Metrolink employees, uh, uh, whether the uh, management takes as good of care of them as they took care of us in the flight. So it looks like that's you're very mindful of, of that kind of a question. I wanted to, um, to also ask, uh, when you do approach the commuters, the riders, aren't they surprised that they're talking to the top dog? Yeah, I think they are. You know, I don't think that uh, they expect that. And uh, normally I think they appreciate the fact that you're out there trying to understand what their needs are, what their issues are. And, you know, I think it's so important that you listen. And when I say listen, it's do you hear what they say? And you have to take your filters off and, and look at it and say, okay, yes, I agree or I understand. And you know, you, you always want to be honest about what's going on and never try to defend what your situation is. I'd much rather have those candid conversations and figure out how we do work to make it better. I want to, I'd love to have that be the refrain. This is the top management for the Metrolink. I want to reiterate, it's much better to hear that than miss that opportunity. I'm very, very glad to hear that. Um, I um, wanted to um, talk with you a little bit about um, the Orange County service, and you've been um, involved in trying to create extra service to move people in and out of the really large events. There was a U2 concert this summer. There was a um, another. I think there was some. Was there an Angels game that you were accommodating? We we, uh, we service all the Angel games. 
Uh, it's been one of our most popular um, most popular trains. I mean, we've had we've moved over almost thirteen thousand people just this season. So it's very very uh, popular train. And of course, the U two train. Uh, you know, we, we felt all along that there there was a demand for event-type trains. And fortunately, we live in one of the event capitals of the world. And we've never marketed to that. So when the U-2 opportunity came up, we put that together in a little over four and a half days. Is that all? Four and a half days, and in, in over a two-day time period, we moved over 11,000 people. And, of course, you know, how nice is it to get on a train at Union Station during peak rush hour traffic and be in the parking lot of Angel Stadium in 40 minutes? Well, with such, I'm, well, first, I want to remind listeners, if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking with John Fenton, Chief Executive Officer of the Southern California Regional R- Rail Authority, also known as Metrolink. And uh, he's talking about a very rapid uh, re- p- response to an opportunity in four days planning a... Um, a MetroLink service to accommodate U2 traffic. Um, so do you have any idea where that idea was hatched that uh, in four days that you could put that all together? Was it for management? Was it management? Was it were that was it employees or were they uh, riders that brought this to, to the uh, attention of MetroLink's uh, management? Well, actually, it was the promoter. Okay, and that's where it comes from sometimes. Yeah, the promoter came to us and, you know, they gave us an opening now, we have reached out to other venues, you know, whether it's the Angels, uh, Disney, um, uh, Knott's Berry Farm. You know, I think it's important that you look at all the things that go on in, in uh, Orange County. And there's millions of people that, that come to Orange County just to enjoy the activities. And whether it's the Honda Center, uh, Angel Stadium, these, these uh, destination uh, recreational centers, uh, we believe there is a huge market both for the the people who go to enjoy the the, the activities as well as the employees. That's wonderful. Actually, I think you uh, do yourself a disservice if you don't say just riding the MetroLink is an event in and of itself. Well, I think it is, you know, and we've Indeed. worked very hard to make the experience. Um, you know, we want our trains to be clean. We want them to be safe. We want them to be good value. And, of course, from a value standpoint, you know, we rolled out the $10 weekend fare. Uh, which has been extremely popular. So you can ride our trains beginning Friday evening till Sunday night for ten dollars. That's where the system operates. That's incredible. Unlimited rides. Those unlimited that, rides. From when again? On Friday until fr- Friday at what time? Seven p.m. Seven p.m. Friday. Friday. Till uh, roughly the last train on eleven fifty-nine p.m. on on Sunday night. Well, that's remarkable. And I I have to make a pitch too for the fact that if these people going to these events, not to mention commuting to their workplaces, by going via Metrolink, I think you're improving the civility of the whole gathering with people that are much less stressed about how to get into a bottleneck, pay for parking, navigate any number of logistics. There aren't those logistics when you're able. You just it's the logistic is where do you just leave your car before you board the train, and so. It, you're doing, I think, a service to each one of these events and the destinations of these commuters and riders with that relaxed setting. I, do you not? Oh, I, I think that that's a big part of the experience is not only are we providing an outlet where people can get on the train, uh, whether you want to listen to music, whether you want to chat with your, with your, your neighbor or your friend, uh, whether you want to sleep, 
you know, you, you have so many options. So when you do come, it should be a stress-free ride. And on top of that, I think it helps the quality of, of life just in Southern California. You know, being gone uh, for almost 20 years when I came back, uh, you know, it's not fun riding out there on the freeways. And, of course, you look at the air quality issues. There's been a lot of progress. But, you know, by riding the train, you help, you help the environment. You help the air quality issues. You help with the gridlock. And hopefully you arrive at your destination happy, refreshed, relaxed, and ready to enjoy the event. Enjoy the event and or make the most of your workplace. You got it. Either Sitting. way. Well, I um, some I don't know if there are any changes in vision for those who are wanting to use the MetroLink for not events, but for uh, I mean not the mega events, but for simply just enjoying sort of the nightlife of another area. Because sometimes the uh, we're uh, restricted by the the sort of grouping around the commuter schedule. Is there any way that MetroLink is able to envision accommodating sort of the, the nightlife sort of commute? Yeah, I, I, One of the things we're looking at, of course, is uh, servicing second shift people who work shift Exactly. Work. And there, there's a demand for that. We think that there's a market for that. And, and at this point, you know, we can get people to work but we're working on a solution on how you would get people home right as at the shift change and there's there's pockets around the southern california area where there is a lot of shift work whether it's hospitals or law enforcement um, but but you know we're we're exploring that i i think that uh, one of the issues in the past has been maybe there hasn't been enough service and we're looking at ways on how you increase service but still keep our cost structure down uh, to provide more options for people. And we're going to continue to tinker with the recipe. You know, I think that uh, you always have to look at uh, continuing to evolve your service, continuing to evolve um, what people understand, what people want. Uh, and as you do that uh, and people start to understand how great the train ride is, we'll get them out of this car culture to where they become fans of using mass transit and it's convenient for them to do so. And that car culture is something I want to make a plug that, uh, that to deal with that. I th- I want to recommend that people um, experience this, tr- uh, participate in this transition by bringing family members on a regular basis to their MetroLink excursion, so that that the young riders get what kind of a commute this is. They enjoy it. They can, um, you know, make it a part of their you know, life ritual. So I, I, I want to, uh, for people to uh, look at uh, how that car culture conversion takes place with intermittent and uh, increasing uh, riding on the, uh, any of the Metro Link um, linkages. So well, you know, I, I think a part of that is you go back to how people get ingrained in, in habits and the way they do things. And, you know, we're all creatures of habit. And to get people out of that routine, that's the challenge. And I think once you get people to see, um, teach them how to use the system, and that's one of our priorities is to simplify uh, the understanding of how you actually use the system. And whether it's getting your tickets, whether it's understanding the schedules, whether it's understanding connectivity and, and how you use it, that's a big part of getting people out of the car culture is just educating them, getting them used to the routine of changing the habit they, that they have. Because I, I can't imagine once you ride 
the train and you look at how congested our freeways are uh, during rush hour time periods, uh, quite frankly, the automobile can't compete for, on a time-wise uh, to and from some of these major uh, work locations. And time is only a factor, as we said. We're, one's disposition certainly uh, benefits from the the setting of the right. And I, I wanted to uh, just let everyone know who's just joined us now. We're talking with John Fenton, Chief Executive Officer of the California Southern Southern California Regional Rail Authority, and it's also known as Metrolink, here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live on www.kuci.org. And about this car culture, you're going to say something, and then I wanted to say something. Well, you know, I guess my only point is is that as we educate the younger riders uh, and we get people used to the benefits, I think that uh, on a go-forward basis, Metrolink has to be a part of the solution to solving a lot of the really complex issues that are facing Southern California. If you look at the, the, the growth in just uh, population in the next 10 years, there's going to be 5 million more people living in this area. Uh, and it's going to be more and more important that the rails play a bigger part in moving people and improving the, the mobility of, of Southern California residents. And I wanted to know, uh, speaking of the car culture, too, the did you get a bounce from the diversion of traffic during Carmageddon last month? Uh, tremendous. It was the highest month weekend ridership in the history of Metrolink. Really? How much was it? Did you, you have yeah, those? It was, it was right at 20,000 riders for the weekend. Wow. And, of course, you know, if you, if you listen to a lot of the people who stayed out of the cars, most people really enjoyed that weekend. And there was a lot of comments, well, why couldn't it be like this every weekend? And actually, it could be. And I think people looked at things a little differently. They, they tried different forms of transportation. And guess what? Uh, it was a great weekend, and they weren't tied to their car all, all weekend. And uh, so I think it showed the potential of what could happen if people do abandon their cars. And you're doing your part, too, in terms of thinking more broadly about transportation. You're allowing for that bicycle mode of transit uh, with uh, in bringing into the fleet. I don't know. Is it called a fleet? Trains? Yeah, we have, we have a car fleet. And, the, of course, we just introduced our yes. bicycle cars. The bicycle cars. And, to the, I mean, it's a, a really a, a number 18. I'm trying to remember the number I heard on, on, I heard on NPR. <laughs> Yeah, it's 18, that's correct. 18 cars, so uh, as to allow, because I know it's, it can be difficult to um, put one's bike with some, some of the ridership, but uh, so accommodating the bicycles gives us a chance to leave the car plainly uh, at, at home, and, uh, you know, and that uh, taking your bike to the Metrolink makes for, uh, you know, easier uh, access, uh, boarding, less parking, uh, um, sorts of congestion like that, so it's it's a it's an amazing accommodation. Well, um, and then the gas prices was probably the other impetus for probably seeing an increase in ridership, was it not? Yeah, I think we got a little bounce from, from the gas prices. And, you know, I'd like to think that uh, there were other things that drove that number as well. I mean, we've, we've, re we've worked really hard to uh, uh, partner with, with uh, corporations to ensure that, uh, you know, we meet their needs. And we've done, we've done a lot of things on a, in a lot of different avenues to try to drive ridership. And I do think uh, gasoline was part of it, but I also think there's other factors that have influenced that as well. Well, I think someone needs to take credit, if not you, uh, your 
you know, your graphics and communications and IT people. It's an amazing interactive map uh, on the website at MetroLinkTrains. Dot, is it dot org? I'm trying to remember what I looked it up at. Yeah, I think I think that's correct. And uh, so you just all you have to do is look at the map. You click on your line, and the boom, you see what you get. Any kind of information from that, it's it's better than ever. Um, it, I think it's a pretty recent innovation that from when I used to try to check out the the schedule and that kind of a thing. So there are we don't have very many excuses not to be adding to the ridership on the MetroLink uh, here in Orange County and throughout the. The total number of counties, I want to San Bernardino, L.A., Ventura, Orange County, and my miss and... Riverside. And Riverside. So the, the, those of you listening, you can you can hear, you can go to all those places. You can go to the beach. You can go to the... Get near the mountains. And of course, I just want to remind people, too, that you can use your Metrolink ticket in the transit systems of those cities where you end up at. And I think that's one of the benefits a lot of people overlook because... Uh, a, a Metrolink ticket will get you on buses and will get you on other connectors. So uh, when you look at the total value of not just the Metrolink train ride, but what it connects you to, it also gives you a lot of options to move around and get around uh, Southern California. Well, I feel like we're sending everybody listening and streaming live on KUCI.org, 88.9 FM Irvine, uh, a means for uh, heading out on a with the remainder of the summer schedule with that wonderful weekend bonus, the $10 for Friday travel, Friday starting 7 p.m., ending at the end of Sunday, and uh, connecting everywhere with everybody. And uh, I don't know where a better place is to meet people than on a train. Uh, I would agree with that. And if you ever, you know, if you look at our normal riders, it's like a social club. Uh, people more normally sit in the same places and they, they, they talk to the same people and you know, it's a it's a social experience that they enjoy and make friends. And to your point, they get to their destination refreshed and not stressed out. And normally, uh, had a a good morning where they can do the things that they want to do. Well, let's hope after the bounces we talked about with higher uh, fuel prices, uh, with the Carmageddon, that maybe we can here at uh, Ask a Leader KUCI give a bounce to uh, the the ridership. Anyway, improving, and I want to thank you, John Fenton, CEO of the MetroLink system here, for, for being on our show, Ask a Leader, and wish you success in uh, expanding more service and more riders. Well, thank you very much, and before I, before I go, just one last comment. Oh, please. Um, you know, I'd like to just recognize my board and the employees. You know, I'm very fortunate that we've got a great group of employees that make it happen every day. You know, the one thing I don't ever pretend, it's the, it's the people out in the field that, that create the experience. They do a wonderful job. They're very focused on making the passengers ride a great experience, and the board has been very supportive in, in helping us get the tools and the equipment and the things we need to, uh, to make Metrolink uh, run. So it's a team sport, and I'm fortunate to be a part of a, of a very good team. Well, I thank you for that enlightened interactive management template that I would love to have taken all management sectors out there, private and public. And thank you for your generous allotment of time. You've got a lot of plates you've got to keep up in the air. And uh, thank you for acknowledging those that help you do that. And thanks to Sharita, who's helped arrange this today. Uh, hats off to you, Sharita. And uh, we'll stay tuned. I'm going to move uh, close out with a little uh, uh, A train from Duke Ellington.
after this, we're going to talk with the um, skeptic science writer, Brian Dunning, who will uh, talk about what he does with his podcast. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining us again, Ask a Leader. We have next on the program, Brian Dunning. He's a science writer and the host and producer of the podcast, Skeptoid, Critical Analysis of Pop Phenomena, Applying Critical Thinking to Urban Legends and Popular Pseudoscientific Subjects Provoked by the Mass Media. Brian's also the author of three books based on the podcast. We'll mention them in a bit. A computer scientist by trade, Brian uses uh, new media to showcase the rewards of science and critical thinking. He also appears on numerous radio shows and other radio shows and television documentaries and also hosts the science video series in fact with Brian Dunning welcome back to welcome to uh, ask a leader Brian hey thank you very much great to be here I'm glad to have you on I've been really intrigued by your very matter-of-fact clean simple ways of uh, debunking various um, you know myths legends or uh, things that were considered fact um, I just let's just break down first the actual meaning of skepticism and I, I remember from classical studies you know in the humanities skepticism was a matter of questioning a way of getting at the truth any questioning uh, attitude of knowledge the facts or opinions or beliefs stated as facts or um, Overall, uh, this requires new information that you're seeking out and giving us evidence. How did you get started with this? <laughs> How did I get started? Well, I just had a lifelong fascination with weird stuff. And to get to your question of, you know, what is skepticism? I mean, skepticism is a way of thinking about weird stuff. It's a way of demanding some kind of a standard of evidence for the things that we go ahead and believe in. You know, we want to see... We want to see what we can actually find out through knowledge, through, science, through the scientific method, and through testing. We want to know what's real and what's not real. And that's basically what skepticism is. Uh, my, my favorite example of the, uh, kind of the, the, the popular manifestation of how we do skepticism is the, the intersection of science education and consumer protection, helping people to understand uh, what's real, what's not real, what kind of products are bogus, what kind of uh, what kind of belief systems are are, are are not based on anything that's real, and uh, that's really what it's about. It's a lot of fun. Well, um, I, I there's a lot of things I want to ask. We don't have as much time as I was thinking we might. Um, your uh, your ideas are do they come from uh, bets people want to settle? Do they uh, log jams that uh, relatives just can't uh, see eye to eye on, or how, where do they where do those come from? Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of the above. People send them to me uh, much faster than I'll ever be able to keep up with. Oh, I've is done, that how uh, you do it? Some 270 episodes to date, and I've got hundreds more in my uh, folder of ideas that I'm still working on. So, yeah, you know, it's urban legends, it's uh, alternative therapies, it's conspiracy theories, it's all kinds of paranormal stuff. Pretty much any legend that you've heard, anything you've heard about that doesn't quite sound right or that you... Sound uh, that, that's intriguing. That you wonder what the facts are. 
that's skeptoid territory right there. Right there. Well, did you find out that any uh, urban legends are actually true? <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, boy, it's a tough question on the spot to think of. Uh, okay, think well, of an no, we'll let you get back um, you know, to what, that. I just the question people usually ask me when they ask that is, do you ever find a case where the paranormal explanation turns out to be the true one? And do the you? answer to that is not yet. Not that yet. That would be great. Uh, please send me the idea if you've got one. Yes, and we'll um, we'll mention it again, but uh, for people that are wanting to know where they're going to take this interview, well, you need to take it to skeptoid.com, and that's how you can get in touch with Brian. Um, you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live on www.kuci.org, and my guest is Brian Dunning, science writer and producer of the podcast Skeptoid. Well, we had as a guest, I had uh, in the late winter, a uh, Reverend Canon Albert Ogle, who was talking about uh, therapy to convert, to, to, to um, help gays mend that disposition to get over being gay. And I, imagine, yes. I noticed that's 260-something of yours. What did you find out about that theory that, um, that gay people can be, can be made well? Yes, the, uh, the healing of the, of the gay people from their evil gayness. Uh, that, was, um, that, that, that was a really interesting episode. Uh, basically, all of the research uh, has, has found that these techniques don't work. Now, that's not to say, that's not to make any kind of a moral judgment about it. I know that all sorts of people have all sorts of feelings on homosexuality. That's not the science question. The science question is, do the therapies to try and convert homosexuals into heterosexuals work? And the answer to that is no. And so many of the programs like Exodus International that, that try to do this, that try to promote the curing of gays, as they put it, um, they really just focus on changing their behavior. They don't expect to change who they are, but they try and change their behavior, try and getting gay people to act heterosexual, for example. I see. I see. Is um, let's see. There's. You've talked about um, the drawbacks with it being set up as a kind of a debate. That if if uh, it yeah. how that happens to sort of uh, not quite square with reason. It gives the impression that. In a debate, you have a, a balanced, even, sort of, even-weighted kind of an argument, but you have a different claim to make, Brian. Yeah, there's, th that's been, um, that's been uh, happening a lot for me this last couple of weeks. Um, up in Canada, um, it was a great example, up in Canada there's a big movement to get uh, Wi-Fi and smart utility meters banned. Uh, because they use radio frequency, and apparently some activists think that radio frequency is harmful or it causes cancer. And the science on this is not in dispute. There's no evidence for that at all. It's completely implausible. have been using radio for, you know, a century, and it hasn't hurt anyone yet. So when we have a debate on this topic, it suggests to people that there is scientific debate. Just by nature of there being a debate, it tells people, hey, there's two sides to this coin, when in fact there's not. We don't have a debate on whether 2 plus 2 equals 4 or 5. Just holding that debate is going to suggest to people, hey, maybe 2 plus 2 does equal 5. So, you know, I resist the idea that we need to have these debates. I think they do more harm than good. Um, however, if we don't have them, um, then it just gives the, the pseudoscientists an unchallenged platform from which to, you know, basically dissuade people of good information. 
Have you been in a forum that was just a little too freaky to uh, that you weren't sure you were going to get yourself out of? Um, once I had a, I, I, I was invited by a church group to give the scientific explanations for why we know the age the the age of the Earth is ancient, four and a half billion years, and they said, "Hey, just come on in. We're just interested in hearing the scientific arguments," and that turned out not to be true. It it turned out to be a genuine ambush where they just basically just wanted to convert me into a uh, young Earth believer. Um, <laughs> It was an interesting evening. The, but how long did you get a talk, though, uh, Brian? Oh, I gave my little, I have a little PowerPoint on that that I gave. It was about an hour. You and, got to give uh, the whole one? followed by about an hour of bully ragging. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> well, do you, Brian, do you have any favorite skeptic um, uh, narratives that you've put together? And I must I say, love the ones that talk about history, that talk about some strange event in history that uh, most of us may have read about when we were kids. Um, boy, there's so many. There's famous haunted house stories. Um, there's, you know, the, the Amityville Horror. There's Borley Rectory. There's uh, UFO stories. One great one was of a UFO that supposedly crashed in Texas in 1897, and they say the alien is still buried there in the town cemetery. And when you can go in and oh do the historical research and read the old newspaper articles and go back to the original sources, you'll always learn something that's really, really interesting. It's a great lesson not only about the history of what happened, but the insight into how these stories develop and how they become urban legends. Oh, a lot wow. of fun for me. So it's not just about science. There's, it's historical. It's, uh, are there any uh, social science phenomena that you uh, uh, pursue? Yeah, I mean, when you say it's not science, it's, it, it, it kind of is, because it's the same, the, the same um, critical thinking thought process. How we learn to tell what's science from what's not pseudoscience is really the same process as how we learn to tell what really happened from uh, an urban legend version of events. And so, I'm... yeah, there's, some, there's social sciences involved, some of this. Um, there was the uh, famous the Stanford Prison Experiment, for example. Oh, my. Um, you know, which uh, was uh, came to the uh, came to the light when we had the the Al Gripe in Iraq. Uh, we went back to the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment to see, hey, it's not the prison guards' fault. They were put into this situation that encouraged normal people to act badly. Right, right. And it was it was really fascinating to unravel the source of that research, find out what was good about that research and what was bad about that research. And what we can actually learn from it compared to what it, how it was popularly presented in the media. Well, you have an uncanny way, as I mentioned, uh, actually in the whole introduction of the show, of making it very simple, very clean, very clear, so that uh, and it, it's deceptively simple. You Lots of work must go into distilling all that goes into explaining a phenomenon in ways that we say, okay, yeah, I get it, Ryan. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I, I do work hard to make it, um, uh, it, it approachable for, for anyone and yet not insulting and still interesting for people who are science professionals and may have a very good grasp of, of the facts. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just a matter of uh, good writing, a lot, of, a lot of research, and then trying to tell it in a narrative form that, uh, that makes it interesting. You know, the show is short. It's only 12 minutes. It comes out once a week. And uh, a lot of people like to listen to it in the car on their way to work or whatever. Yes, and I, uh, it's since it, you're 
272 and increasing. It's hard to uh, even, uh, you know, start to talk about uh, what they are. But the folks can hear and they can either read the transcript or hear Brian's really savvy uh, delivery on the uh, skeptoid.com website. Um, you can find out, too, where you can get his uh, other publications, Skeptoid, Critical Analysis of Pop Phenomena, Skeptoid 2, More Critical Analysis of Pop Phenomena, and Skeptoid 3, Pirates, Pyramids, and Paparus, all available on his website. Um, is there, uh, I think right now on the website, there's not anything posted in an upcoming event, but you've been, you've been invited into some very interesting places all over the world. Yeah, I do a lot of speaking at conferences. I've got uh, quite a few different presentations for all different ages. I do probably the most common thing I do is speaking at colleges. Um, I also speak at a lot of conferences. I go to I go to younger kids' schools sometimes. I do video and Skype presentations. Um, you know, I, the, the the presentations that I give are very much appropriate for general audiences. I don't go into things like politics and religion. People are always trying to get me to go there, but that's just not what my show's about. Um, I, w- I want to make sure that this information is available to all audiences. And I uh, like to keep it clean, I like to keep it fun, and I like to keep it, uh, keep it interesting. Yes, and your and you're, uh, following does like to point out how you love to wrap up uh, your uh, one, especially on the microwave one, I remember, that... Uh, how you debunked um, the microwave hazards, microwave oven, excuse me, hazards, mm-hmm. and uh, how you said it might not be. How would you remember how you wrapped that up? That they, that you're falling, just loved it. No, it's something. <laughs> uh, I usually say something like, uh, when you hear a story that uh, doesn't seem to be true, you should always be skeptical. Be skeptical. Something like that. Is something that about whether whether no, it was something about whether there was maybe some sort of something that would. Uh, that would have affected your brain after all, but it um, it was just a, a self-deprecating remark that um, just tried to sort of take the lance any more of the hot air out of uh, that you know ponderous, uh, lingering, um, paranormal. Yeah, much like when we were talking about whether cell phones can actually um, affect the navigation systems on airplanes and can actually pose a hazard. Okay, let's wrap. Let's close out with that. that was, what's that? Yes, let's close out with that one. Okay, I said. Maybe if you threw your cell phone at the plane's GPS really hard, you might break it. Okay. Chances in that happening. Thank you. That is that is wonderful. Well, I thank you, Brian, for being on the show today. Brian Dunning. He's the he's a science writer and producer of one of the um, of the many many podcasts available on Skeptoid.com, and he has other publications. You can. He's been um, he's pr- been at panels uh, or uh, forums here at UCI and uh, just look on his website for uh, any up and coming events and you can help support him the little contribution if you want but support him first by reading reading hearing him deliver these as I said very clean explanations for what we all wonder is it or isn't it true so thank you very much for being on the show Brian take care well thank you very much okay all the best bye bye so we are going to close out the show. Thanks for listening today, folks. Uh, next week, I hope to bring you uh, Mark Levine, who will pick up where he left off with us during the Arab Spring and talk about the uh, Arab Summer and maybe the latest on the Health and Human Services rulings on women's health that came out last week. And we'll talk, hopefully, with Stephanie Kite of Planned Parenthood. But for now, we're going to close it out with a transition for uh, George Rosales for George Had a Hat. Take it away. 